Thanks, Matthew. If you would, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 9 is where we'll be this morning. And as we've walked through Luke's Gospel and as we've watched Jesus teach and preach and, and heal, we keep hearing the question, who is this? Who is this? Well, today we're going to see Jesus pose that question, who am I, to his followers, to those who have been walking with him. So let's listen in to Luke chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 18. Let's listen into this conversation between Jesus and his disciples. Now it happened that as he, Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is God's word. He has inspired it for our good, that we would trust him and believe. Let's ask him for his help as we do that now. God in heaven, open our eyes. Help us to see Jesus and to see him rightly. Changes from the inside out, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's this, there's all of this excitement uh, and confusion and expectation and frustration surrounding Jesus, swirling around Jesus. You may be familiar with the phrase, uh, the elephant in the room, right? It's that, it's that thing that everybody's thinking about but no one's actually talking about except maybe in whispers and corners. Well, in this case, the elephant in the room is Jesus. All of these things, all of these words are swirling around Him. But now, for the first time, Jesus addresses them. And and with it, Luke's gospel begins to take a turn. Now, as Jesus more clearly reveals who He is and what He's come to do. And really, the rest of the gospel leading up to the the fateful moment when He walks into Jerusalem, Jesus will be preparing those who follow Him for the kind of ministry that He has come to embark on, what He has come to do. And so, I want you to know that the uh, the way that Jesus takes this conversation 
is not what anybody would have expected him to say. If I, if, if this room, if this were a group, if we were a group of first century Jewish people, and I had read to you uh, about Jesus, about the Messiah, what I just read, your, your response would have been something like, what? The way that Jesus is going is not a way that anybody expects. Jesus' call is not what anybody is looking for. And so we're going to look at two things here. First, we're going to look at what it means to... Oh, I forgot to change that. Sorry. You're just going to have to go. You're just going to have to go with my words and not pay attention to the screen. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. <laughs> two things we're going to look at. Not five, but two. And Tiffany, if you just want to bump it back up to the uh, sermon text, you can do that. The first thing we're going to look at is what does it mean to profess the real Jesus? What does it mean to profess the real Jesus? And then second, what does it mean to follow the real Jesus? With an emphasis on the real. Because that's, that's where the confusion is in this episode. People are pondering, who is this Jesus? And the way that Jesus answers their questions is not what they expected Him. So let's, let's start with Jesus' question. Let's start with that question. It's a crucial one. Who do you say that I am? I could argue that this is actually the question. This is the core question of Christianity. Of, of all the questions you can or want to or should answer about Christianity, this is the one that you must answer. Who do you say that He is? Who is He? Who do you say that He is? And because as, as Jesus is going to show us, your answer to that question determines the answer to so many others. Your answer to that question... Who do you say that he is determines the answer to so many others. And also would add that it's a personal question. Who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? Jesus has already gotten public opinion. And the first century and the 21st century really aren't all that different in this regard. Public opinion isn't very helpful. Right? Jesus, Jesus has heard what the masses think about him. And... You'll notice that they regard him with some honor. They, they esteem him to be a prophet, a teacher. And so they give him some credit, but it's just not enough. They're right to a point, but they don't go far enough in what they say. And so Jesus turns to his 12 friends, the, the 12 followers closest to him, and he asks them, what about you? And at some point, you have to answer that question. Not, who does Pastor Kevin say Jesus is? Not simply, who do my parents say Jesus is? Who do my friends say Jesus is? Who do I say Jesus is? The right question is always a good place to start. But only if it comes away with the right answer. And Jesus answers, rather Peter answers the question... Uh, and then Jesus elaborates. And so Peter, speaking for the twelve, when Jesus says, yeah, but who do you say that I am? Uh, Jesus, I mean, Peter, speaking for the twelve, says, you are the Christ of God. 
Christ is just, uh, it's the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. So in other words, what Peter is saying is, you're not just a prophet. You're not just a, a resurrected prophet from of old. You're actually the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're not the messenger. You are the message. You're the one we've been waiting for. And notice, Jesus doesn't correct him. In fact, in Matthew's version of the story, in Matthew's account, Jesus actually commends Peter. And he says, Peter, God, God revealed that to you. You didn't come up with that answer on your own. God showed that to you. And so, Peter answers correctly. Jesus is God's Messiah. But, have you ever gotten the right answer on a test, but you didn't, you didn't get there the right way? I think it was, it was either in Miss Bennett's seventh grade math class, or it was in Miss Maxwell's fourth grade math class. It probably happened both times. It actually happened a lot because math is not one of my strong suits. Right? That, remember, I don't know if they still do this, but you would, uh, you, when, when you get the right answer, but they make you show your work, and you didn't get there the right way, and so they counted the whole thing wrong. Yeah, that happened to me a lot, right? Um, somehow, somehow, somewhere, I had pulled that number out of the ether, and I had put it on my paper, but because I did not get there the right way, it wasn't completely correct. Or maybe you've been having a conversation, or even a conflict, this happens a lot in, in, in conflict with one another, where you said the right words, but you, right, you have two people who are saying the same word, but they don't mean the same thing. And so they end up missing each other. Now, I know that doesn't happen to any, any marriages in here or anything like that. That's never happened, but it happens to some people, okay? Well, Peter's answer is correct. As, and his answer is right as far as it goes. It just doesn't go far enough. Look at verse 21. After Peter answers, Jesus says this. Or this happens. He strictly charged and commanded them. So he is sternly telling them, commanding them, tell this to no one. What? I thought we were supposed to tell everybody about Jesus. Why does Jesus tell Peter to not... Why does Jesus tell all of his disciples, don't say anything? You got it, but don't say this. Why would Jesus say that? Well, he explains in the next couple of verses, in the next verse. He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must... And that's a, that's a title from the Old Testament that Jesus uses for himself. The Son of Man must suffer many things. He actually says four things are going to characterize this, this Messiah, okay? Uh, one, he must suffer many things. Two, he must be rejected by the leadership. Three, he must be killed. And four, on the third day, be raised. The reason Jesus tells Peter and the others not to say anything is because their job description of the Messiah did not include any of those four things. They had the right job title, but the wrong job description. And so Jesus says, listen, don't go telling anybody that just yet. I need to correct the way that you're thinking about 
the Messiah. I need to help you understand that the Messiah that you're looking for is not the Messiah that I've come to be. You see, they, they were under Roman oppression. They had this, this great history, this great glory days, right? When they had their own temple and their own king. And it was wonderful. But they didn't follow their God and so they lost it all. And for over 400 years, they had been oppressed by different governments. And now the Romans were ruling over them and they hated it. And so they're looking for a strong man. They're looking for a warrior, king, somebody like David to come in and flex his muscles and get rid of their opponents. And Jesus says, that's not what I've come to do. You're looking for the wrong kind of Messiah. And I think sometimes, maybe a lot of times, we're in danger of doing the same thing. If I look at the way that we talk, if I look at the way, uh, the way that we're described, uh, that Christians are described in the media, I think, it's, I think I see us in danger of doing the very same thing. We want a strong man who uses strong words and flexes his strong muscles and puts down our opponents. And that's not what Jesus has come to do. We want to get behind a strong man, not behind a suffering Savior. That's what Jesus has to correct. To truly profess Jesus means that we must accept the humiliation of His cross. If we're not going to accept a humiliated and suffering Savior, then we're, then we're getting behind some other Messiah. We're lining up behind some other Savior who will not lead us in the right direction. Because the way that Jesus rescues is not through power. At least not, not as we understand power. You see, we want, we want saviors who will take matters into their own hands. Who get the job done. But Jesus' road to winning looks a whole lot like losing. In fact, look at how passive Jesus is. He has to suffer. He will be rejected. So th these are all the things that Jesus allows to happen to Himself. He allows Himself to suffer. He allows Himself to be rejected. Who would choose that? He doesn't even fight back. He allows Himself to be killed. This passive, suffering Savior. What kind of Savior is that? And the only glimmer of hope that they don't catch is it says He will be raised. That God's one response to all of humanity's sinful actions is to raise this Messiah from the dead. So even in that, Jesus is passive. There will be triumph. There will be victory. But Jesus' road to the crown must go through the cross. Are we ready to line up behind that Savior? To accept that kind of humility? 
But I hope you see that it's precisely in the humility of the cross that you find its beauty. You see, we seek to save ourselves through scrapping and strength and striving, but that's not God's way. God has come to rescue us by laying down His life, not taking up arms. In the story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, if you're not familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is the great king. He is a lion. Uh, he is the Christ figure in the stories. He's the son of the king from over the sea. And everywhere he goes, he, he at once both terrifies people and warmly welcomes them. But there's a scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe uh, where Aslan has to pay the debt for a traitor. For a young boy named Edmund who did a bad thing. And so this, this powerful lion king must go and submit himself to his enemy, the great white witch, and to her hordes of monsters and demons. And as he walks up to the altar... As he walks up to the stone table uh, trepidatiously at first, but then once they realize that he's not going to fight back, they bind him with ropes, they muzzle his mouth, and they shave him. They shave the glorious mane, his glorious mane, they shave it off his head. And then they start to jeer at him and make fun of him. And they say, look, he's only a cat after all. Does little kitty want some milk? Did you catch some mice, little kitty? And Lucy and Susan are watching all of this and they are devastated and horrified that their friend Aslan is, is allowing this to happen. And then Lucy, it says that, that Lucy now sees him without his mane and he looks more noble and more patient than he has ever looked before. Jesus has come to save the world through dying. That is how Jesus loves the world. And so we need to trust the suffering servant and not the swaggering strong man. We need the real Jesus, not some kind of substitute. But after Jesus redefines what it means for Him to be the Messiah, He then also redefines what it means to follow such a Messiah. So if we're going to profess the real Jesus, we also need to follow the real Jesus. And here's how Jesus describes that following in verse 23. He said to all, If anyone would come after me, if anyone wants to go down my road, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So following the real Jesus means, if, if professing Jesus means we have to accept the humiliation of the cross, following Jesus means we must walk in the humiliation of the cross. If this is Jesus' road, we must expect the same. We must embrace the same cross that Jesus takes. If we own Jesus, our road looks like His road. And Jesus captures it in these three statements. He must deny himself. Paul, Paul puts it this way in Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility 
in humility, count others as more important than yourself. Count others as more important than yourself. This is, it means this, we're willing to be put out, frustrated, stepped on, and possibly even taken advantage of because other people are more important than me. That's what it means to deny yourself. It's what Jesus does. Jesus denies what is rightfully His and embraces humiliation. Take up His cross daily. The cross was a punishment. It was a sign of rejection. Uh, if you were crucified, you had to bear your cross through town on your way to be executed so that so that all of your friends and family, so that the other people in your community, they could see you. They could, they could see you made an object of the government's scorn. And if you were not well liked, it was a great opportunity for your opponents and enemies to hurl insults at you. You carried it on your way to a gruesome death so that everyone would see your humiliation. Jesus says, that's what we take up daily. Daily. And in that way, we follow Jesus. If Jesus' road to winning looks like losing, then maybe we need to get a whole lot more comfortable with losing. Now, that all sounds really awful, doesn't it? I want you to hear... I want you to hear the warning and the promise that Jesus gives. Listen to the warning and promise that Jesus gives in the next verse. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Think about how, think about how counterintuitive this is. Think about how unnatural this is that Jesus is telling us to do. What are our, what are our normal goals? Self-promotion, self-protection, right? I want to, I want to insulate myself from injury, certainly physical, and definitely emotional, right? Self-promotion, self-protection. I need you to know how great I am. I need you to recognize how much I have to offer. Jesus' call is the exact opposite. Are we okay if our names are not even mentioned? Are we okay if history completely forgets who we are, but the name of Jesus is proclaimed? Are you satisfied with that? That's, that's the Calvary road. That's the road Jesus is calling us to walk. Let, Hear that warning. Whoever wants to keep his life. So if you want to, if you're, if self-promotion is what you're after, if self-protection is what you're after, if you want to keep your life safe, uh, by guarding it with all kinds of the, the comforts that you can muster, or if you want to have control over everything so that nothing goes wrong, everything goes right, if you want to keep your life, if you want to save your life, Jesus has a very stark warning. 
The very thing you want to preserve, you will lose. If you want to, whoever would save his life will lose it. The very thing you think you're holding on to will be taken from you. But I also want you to hear the promise. Not only, not only does this call come with a very stark warning that you will lose whatever it is that you're trying to preserve, but it also comes with a beautiful, freeing promise. I want you to hear this. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Isn't that upside down? Jesus, you're telling me that if I, if I hold on to this white knuckle grip, if I have to control and manipulate to preserve and protect my life, if I'm storing up treasures here so that I will never be uncomfortable, you're saying that I lose it all. But if I give it away, if I, if I let go of that white knuckle grip and give it all away for the sake of the gospel, that I'll actually save my life. That the very thing I'm giving away will come back to me. That's the beauty and freedom of the promise of Jesus. If you aim to give it away, you will find the only life that matters. Think about that. Think about your priorities. Think about the things that you, the, the priorities you set for your children. The different activities that you have them do. Your, your goals and aims for them in life. When I, when I worked in youth ministry, it was a common question. I would commonly ask students why they were, why they were pursuing an education. Why do you go to school? Why do you go into this college, etc.? And, and the common refrain, well, I need to get a good job so I can make good money. If you went to the generation or two prior to that, you probably would have heard something to the effect of, well, I want my kids to have a better life. Now I feel like probably the answer you would hear most often is, well, I just want to change the world. How does the cross factor in to any of that? How does self-denial and cross-bearing factor in to the aims with which we live? Jesus says if we give it away, if we don't hold on to it, but if we give it away, if we give our lives away, we will actually find life there. If we die to ourselves, we will find life there. We were at Presbytery yesterday, and we'll close with this story. Uh, a fellow pastor named Paul Hahn was sharing a story. He was sharing a story about his wife who said, he, he said that uh, his wife, he, he said whatever he's learned about service and sacrifice, he's learned from his wife. Uh, that she's just she's just a, a wonderful woman in that regard, and and she she's quick to correct him, and she reminds him uh, that she grew up uh, going when she was a teenager in school, she was not the humble servant. She was actually a mean girl. She was she was the bully. Uh, she was the one who had to have prominence of place, and if anyone came into her her orbit who threatened that, then she attacked. 
She made sure that she maintained this. And so there was a, there was a particular girl. We'll call her Jane. Jane comes to school. She's pretty. And so we'll call our, uh, we'll call our mean girl. We'll call her Sally. And so Sally feels threatened. So what does Sally do? She bullies her. She makes fun of her. She makes sure that her friends don't include her. Now, if you're Jane's parents, how do you respond to that? You bow up, right? You step in. You flex your strong arms and you let that brat know. Here's what Jane's mom did. She made, she, she, she learned a little bit about Sally. Uh, she learned uh, that Sally didn't have a dad at home. And mom was struggling to make ends meet on her own. And so she was basically raising herself. She learned that uh, Sally wasn't very good in school. Uh, that her, her grades were not what they were. And so uh, Jane's mom made sure that she uh, invited Sally over so that her daughter could help her in school. Inviting the mean girl over to the target, the, the, her victim's house, so to speak, uh, to serve her. Uh, she, she gave her, she, she, she sent cookies and muffins with uh, her daughter to school. And over time, uh, I forget now which names I've used for what. Um, Sally's the mean girl, Jane's good at thanks. Alright? Over time, Sally came to view Jane's parents as her own parents. And when it was time for uh, Sally to go to school, uh, go away to college, it was Jane's parents who drove her. Uh, Jane's mom and her were in the front car. Sally's dad and Sally were in the back car. Because this was basically her dad taking her to school. It changed Sally's life. She became the humble servant. This is the way of the cross. This is what, this is what humbling ourselves and bearing the cross looks like. Who do you say that he is? And are you willing to follow the real Jesus? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for the cross, for the beauty of it, for its humiliation. Lord, may we learn to bear it and bear it gladly. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.